And we've been going through, last week we, we looked at this idea of marriage and some of the marriage and sex idolatry that we face as a culture. There's a, there's a famous prayer written by a, a theologian named Reinhold Niebuhr that says, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change and the courage to change the things that I can and the wisdom to know the difference. My main idea today is that making changes to your life will not clarify God's calling. It is clarity about God's calling that changes your life. So we're not called to change our relationship status, add religious practices, or social climbing. We're invited to come as we are into the calling God has for us, has for us which infuses our life and our place with significance. So I used, to, I used to build decks. You know, I've talked about construction stuff. I spent 15 years doing it. Um, and there was, a, there was a time when I was younger, and we built a lot of decks one summer. And at the end of the summer, we were building a deck in the rain. So construction's awesome when it's sunny outside. But in the rain, it just changes. It changes everything. And so we're working on this deck, and I had this, this old skill saw. That, must, that was maybe older than me. And it's pouring down rain. And every time I fired that guy up to cut wood, it would shock me. But it was the only saw that we had that day. Uh, it was horrible. And, it, and every time I got shocked cutting wood, it made me matter, like the whole day. So it was just this frustrating experience working on this, working on this job. And I, you know, it's not good for me to be in the rain, getting shocked, and just being miserable because it just fires up my cynicism and my sarcasm and I just get to the place hey I just get to the place where uh, I just go to a bad place and it just kind of the rain's coming down and then just like the darkness is just kind of pouring out and I was working actually with my brother-in-law funny enough who's who is the eternal optimist and uh, it was really interesting to see us you know together and he would try with his optimistic gospel to to change me and I would try with my cynicism and pessimism to, to convert him. And uh, eventually, he, when he couldn't take it anymore, he would just walk away from me, you know, and leave me just grumbling and getting shocked and cutting wood. And uh, at the end of the job this one day, the, the homeowner comes out, and she was, she was like a, a really nice elderly lady. We were building a deck for her. It was a nice deck. And she was, I could see by her face that she kind of wanted to interact with us and she, she, she was looking at the deck, like, admiringly, and she was, I could see that, she, and she came up to us and, and said, and I remember my, Josh is standing there, and I'm sitting there, and, and she says, this is such a wonderful, you guys have done such a wonderful job. This is, you guys, you must get so much, uh, you must get so much out of a job, like, such a sense of accomplishment out of a job like this. It must be so nice to do this kind of stuff. And I was, I'm looking, and she kind of left it hanging, like, what's your response, you know? And a bunch of stuff ran through my mind. And, uh, you know, trying to filter it out. And all I, could, all I could grunt out was, it's just another job. And then I walked away. So rude. Like, I was so rude to her. Luckily, Josh was there to, to save the day and sort of begin to engage her and tell her how much we love this kind of work and how, how fulfilling it was to, to build decks for other people. And then uh, I just started packing up our stuff. You know, I, just, I had, had had enough that day. And uh, 
she, I could see in her face my response was not good, you know. But Josh, he's good. He saved the day. And then, so, it's just this perspective on what I was doing. It just, it was coming from inside of me, right? It wasn't the work. Later on in my life, I'm doing the same exact kind of a job, building another deck. It's weird how things came to me in, the, in these work days. But uh, a, a worse one, because I had concrete it was a second story one. Concrete is stressful. Pouring concrete is stressful. Um, it's a second story job. It was just harder work, less help. And yet, my perspective at this point in my life had, had been transformed because God had been getting a hold of who I was and began, began to help me understand that my significance in life wasn't coming from the fact that I built decks. Because even when that lady came up to me and said, it was so nice of you. It's so nice that you build these decks. In my mind, I kind of had this, this thinking like, this is my significance. Like, I'm your servant that builds decks for you. Like, it must be nice to have these, these peon workers that you can just get to do this menial tasks for you. You know, my, my, my thinking was so jaded. And when God began to transform my life, my circumstances didn't change. And I was doing the same sort of gross, hard work that I, I, I had begun to despise because it, it was sort of an identity for me. But when God transformed who I was and, and who I, where I was going and what I, what I knew about life, I could do the same work with a completely different attitude. Nothing changed. The workload, the job, nothing had changed except that I understood who I was doing the job for. And I understood that that job had significance because it contributed to the calling that God had, had given in my life. And so as we, as we think about this passage, Paul is, he says, I tell everyone to remain as you were when God called you. It's an interesting statement. And, it, and if, you, if you break down this passage, it's, it's an outline that, where he says, everyone should remain as they were when God called them. Info. Everyone should remain as they were when God called them. Info. Everyone should remain as they were when God called them. He says it three times. And when he does that, when, when they write stuff three times in their parchments, it's important. <laughs> when they repeat it like that. So it's interesting for Paul, this, the... the the structure of this uh, section is very interesting. So let's, I want to jump in where I left off last week if you were here and if you weren't. We were talking about marriage and marriage idolatry in the church and the fact that we look at these passages on marriage and sex as if sex is the only thing that it's about because of our just distorted view of sex in our society. But today I just wanted to touch on singleness because Paul throughout this chapter he's talking about marriage and he's talking about singleness. And let's look at the case that Paul makes here for singleness. It's an interesting thing, he says. Especially in light of the way that we think. So he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1 from last week, he answers their question. Yes, it's good to be celibate. It's good to be single. So that was their statement. He's, he's expanding on it. He says, yes, it is good, but, right? And then he talks to marriage, married people. So he's, he's basically saying, yes, celibacy is a good thing, except when you've covenanted with God and a spouse to honor them in marriage. So I just want to stress here, celibacy is a good thing. It's not only possible, but it's a good thing, according to Scripture. The gospel should be sort of shocking to our culture. If we're not preaching a message that doesn't somehow say, like, you're wrong <laughs> in, in our culture, we're not really getting the truth of the gospel across. 
it's interesting that he says it's a good thing because our culture doesn't say that. Our culture says exactly the opposite. Our culture says there's something wrong with you. You're somehow deficient. You're somehow lacking if somehow you're not married or even worse, part of the hookup culture. There's something wrong with the 40-year-old virgin. And God says, that's a good thing, depending on what your calling is. Now, this is what we, we can't miss. Next, Paul says in verses 6 through 8, I say this as a concession, not a command, but I wish everyone were single just as I am. Yet each person has a special gift from God of one kind or another. So I say to those who aren't married and to widows, it's better to stay unmarried just as I am. So he's talking to those who have lost spouses or been divorced. They're encouraged that it's a good thing to stay single. This is even commented about in, upon in history. It's a strange practice of the early church in their culture. Rodney Stark, the historian, says this. Should they be widowed, Christian women also enjoyed a very substantial, very substantial advantages. Pagan widows faced great social pressure to remarry. Augustus even had widows fined if they failed to remarry within two years. In contrast, among Christians, widowhood was highly respected and remarriage was, if anything, mildly discouraged. The church stood ready to sustain poor widows, allowing them a choice as to whether or not to remarry. It's a very countercultural message to them to say, you don't have to remarry. Those who use the things of the world should not become attached to them, for this world, for this world as we know, will soon pass away. I want you to be free from the concerns of this life. An unmarried man can spend his time doing the Lord's work, thinking how to please him, but a married man has to think about his earthly responsibilities and how to please his wife. His interests are divided. In the same way, a woman is no, who is no longer married or has never been married can be devoted to the Lord and holy in body and spirit, but a married woman has to think about her earthly responsibilities and how to please her husband. I'm saying this for your benefit, not to place restrictions on you. I want you to do whatever will help you serve the Lord best as with, and with few distractions as possible. Remember, the, the whole point of this chapter is that verse. I'm not doing this to play. I'm not saying this to place restrictions on you. I'm saying it for your benefit because I want you to do whatever will help you serve the Lord best. Serving the Lord, following the Lord implies one important thing, that he's in charge, that he's the one that called you. So you don't say to the Lord, here's how I'm going to best serve you. It's, it's not a good idea. You need to hear clearly from God on these things, especially. In church history, there's an unfortunate story of origin, the early church father. Upon reading the passage that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19, when we think about singleness, I'll get back to origin in a second. When we think about singleness, we can't remember the most important single person ever to have existed in history, Jesus Christ right? Jesus was a single person who was celibate. And in his 33 years, in his 30 years, he never had sex. And he was brutally murdered. And it's the best life that was ever lived. I'll tell you this, Jesus says in Matthew 19, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery unless the wife has been unfaithful. Jesus' disciples then said to him, if this is the case, it's better not to marry they wanted an easy out from marriage. 
they wanted to be able to like hold on to this this opportunity like I don't want to make a lifelong commitment to this person if in case I need out of it Jesus says no no fault divorce if you just get rid of somebody and throw them to the curb for no reason you're making them commit adultery not everyone can accept this statement Jesus said on those whom God helps only those whom God helps some are born as eunuchs some have been made eunuchs by others and some choose not to marry for the sake of the kingdom of heaven let anyone accept this who can Jesus clearly puts his stamp on singleness on celibacy he clearly says it's okay and in fact some people are called to this some people have been forced into this life eunuchs how do you preach the gospel to a eunuch if you're caught up on, the, on this idea that you have to get married what, what are they going to do some people have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom and some people, some people are called to this the church father Origen read that passage and said the best way to serve God is to be a eunuch and he made himself a eunuch early on and guess what later on he regretted it in his teachings we don't choose for ourselves this calling this is a calling from God and when we have it we understand it and it's not a one time thing this is what our culture wants you to do it wants you at some point in your K through 12 sex education to declare your permanent orientation this is who I am this is, this is the pressure of identity in our culture. This overly sexualized culture. 13-year-olds, 12-year-olds, you need to declare who you are. You need to make a lifelong decision right now about who you are and choose sides. These things, these things don't last forever. The interesting thing about the confusion in our culture, if you think about this, think about this reality. The arguments and all the political hype around this idea of transgenderism. The, idea, the, the debate around, around whether there even is such a thing as gender or whether we've just made it up in our culture. It's very confusing to people to try to understand how we interact with one another. But on the one side, this is the point I want to make. On the one side, people are saying gender is fluid. You can make decisions about your gender, no matter your biology. Gender is just a social construct. You decide. You decide. And the, and the deciding factor is just how you, where you're at right then in your life. You decide where you're at. If at some point in your life you decide, I need to be opposite, gendered, I'm going to transition my gender to the other. It's confusing, though, because there is no such thing as gender. And on the, on the other hand, they say to you, sexual orientation is cement. Sexual orientation is forever. You cannot choose the difference on that. You can't choose to go from one side or the other. See the confusion that we have? We don't, we don't, we don't understand... <laughs> We, we want to we let our heart be our guide. We want to let our inside be our guide. We don't have anything outside of us helping us find the right way, find the truth. So we're confused. We're just hopelessly confused about this. Think about the message that's going out to people that don't have access to God's commandments. They don't have access, access to the truth. That haven't heard the good news of the gospel. That your identity is not just what you decide on a certain day about your sexual orientation or your gender or your class or your vocation. That your identity can be something so much greater than that. You can become a child of God. Permanently. Forever. 
So some choose not to marry for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let anyone accept this who can. And the reason I'm just harping on this, I think that maybe you feel it as well. In the church and in our culture, there is a marriage idolatry. We look at people sort of like books, like books need to become movies to sort of be entirely fulfilled, right? People need to get married to become entirely fulfilled. It's just not true. It's, it's not true. What has God called you to? That is the question that we need to wrestle with. And the reason I, I talk about the, the sort of time issue is, you know, if you're single, Paul says, remain as you are when you were called. If you're single, you are single, right? If that's where you're at right now, what is God calling you to, do, to be? What is God calling you to do right where you're at? How do you follow Jesus right where you're at? And maybe God hasn't called you to be single indefinitely. But if you're single right now, you're single. How do you follow God in that? He says to those who are slaves, if you're a slave right now, don't worry. It doesn't affect your salvation. You can, you can follow Jesus wholeheartedly and be a slave. You don't have to free yourself to follow Jesus. But if you can, gain your freedom. Gain your freedom. So if you're single, don't worry. You don't have to somehow get married to fully follow Jesus. You can follow Jesus right now. You might be called to be single for a time. And later on, God has something for you. A a marriage. You might be called to be single until you meet with Christ. But the, the, the point of this is, we get hung up on that. It's like, Ugh. we really think, like, are you, are you saying that someone could live their whole life without having sex? Yes, that is what the Bible is telling us. And the Bible says it's a good thing if God has given you this gift. It's interesting because in our minds, this, this really comes up against our idols. Someone could forego sex to follow Jesus. Really? Is Jesus, can Jesus, is Jesus really that good? Is Jesus really that fulfilling? You can flip the coin and say, is sex really that good? Is sex really that fulfilling? You wrap your whole life up in it? No, you don't. Even when, you, even when you, your sexual identity is your culture, it's still not enough of a definition for you. You still lack. That's why people were sort of distraught after marriage was, uh, after uh, gay marriage was proclaimed the law of the land in our country because those who had advocated for so long sort of lost meaning and significance in their lives. They said to themselves, now what? The struggle is what united us. The struggle is what gave us purpose. Now we're just, now we can just get married? There's articles about it. People are saying, now what's going to unite us? Like, because we don't have anything left to fight for. Because really it's the fight that really gave you meaning and purpose in your life, not your sexual identity. So we might be called to be single. We need food to live, and it's a requirement for life, but we don't need sex to live. People can live a whole life without ever having sex. Jesus says, men do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So Jesus says, yeah, you can live the physical life with bread, but life comes from every, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. There's a different level of life that God is calling us to. So don't miss what God is saying when it, when it comes to celibacy. 
a lot of us, the, the immediate place we go, and this is, I know very well, I'm, the, I'm like a doctor of pessimism. I go to the negative. When, when you, what do you think of when, when I, the first time, when I, when I first say fasting, what do you think of? Not eating. That's not what fasting is about. Fasting is not about not eating. So I'm going to fast tomorrow. So then I just spend all day thinking about not eating. I have accomplished less than nothing. Because now I'm just tired and crabby and weak and I forgot to pray. Because I just resisted food all day. And said, ah, I fasted yesterday. I'm more holy. And God's just barely restraining the lightning bolts. (laughs) Fasting is about saying, I want to hear from God more than anything else at all. More than my own breath. More than food. More than anything in my life. I want to focus to a point where I can hear from God. Fasting is a positive action that leaves something behind. Because you're saying that hearing from God is going to be everything that I need at this point. And it's a, de- it's a declaration to God too. I want to hear from you more than anything, even more than my selfishness and my stomach, which usually guide my day. Because we're, we're, we are, Proverbs says, uh, a worker is motivated by his hunger. <laughs> a worker is pushed on by his stomach. It's very true. It's just how we work. But when we stop that process and say, God, I want to hear from you more than anything, that's what fasting is. A life of celibacy is nothing less than saying, Jesus, I love you more than anything. And your love is enough. And we like to to ridicule it and doubt it and mock it. But have we walked in it? And do you know anyone that's walked that life? Do they turn around and say, oh, man, at the end of my life of, of serving Jesus wholeheartedly, I wish I would have got married. You don't, you, don't find, you don't find people who have, who have served Jesus and followed him their whole life turning around and saying, oh, I regret that. <clears throat> so our culture is hyper-sexualized. We've lost the ability to have deep friendships which provide relational, non-sexual intimacy. We think the only way to really be intimate with somebody is sexually. What about deep friendships? We, we almost don't even know how to be friends. Is it really just a click on, a, on an online portal on somebody's picture? Like, how many friends do you have? It makes you feel good to say, like, I have 1,726 friends. Really? How do you keep up with them? Do you really know them? Oh, you won't believe what my friend said on Facebook. I hate that person. What? Tim Keller says, We are neither to be overly elated about getting married nor overly disappointed about not being so because Christ is the only spouse who can truly fulfill us and God's family the only family that will truly embrace and satisfy us. The Christian gospel and hope of the future kingdom dethrone the idolatry of marriage. Christianity upholds a single adulthood as a viable way of life. Prior to Christianity, nearly all religions and cultures made family and childbearing a foundational cultural value. There was no honor without family honor, and there was no lasting significance or legacy without heirs. By contrast, the early church did not pressure people to marry. The single life is declaring to our world 
that my honor is Christ, that my legacy is Christ. I don't need to, to propagate myself to find meaning or to find identity, to be able to lay a foundation for my security. My security is in Christ. I serve in the kingdom of God, and he's called me to be like this. He's called me to serve him in this way. And so when the single person is in a church and they're interacting, it's, it's on both sides. The, the single person says, there's too many married people here. You always, you always talk about marriage and kids. Or the married people say, oh, there's no, there's no families here. Our kids don't have anything to do. And so that they split. And everyone goes to the young single church. And then the families go to the family churches. And the kingdom loses out. The kingdom loses out on an opportunity to truly be the multi-generational family that God has called us to be. Because when young single people all get together, it's a very insular and unhealthy perspective that they have on life. And they have questions that just old gray-haired people have answers to. And when old gray-haired people get together, it's a very insular and unhealthy perspective on life. And they have a ton of answers with no one to give them to. The church was designed by God, the one who's designed all of the stuff around us to work together in these, in these ways. It's on us to build these relationships and not to despise the single person or not to look at all the married people. They only care about their families. No, it's to become family together to build those types of intimate relationships and friendships that Christ will enable us to have. The church values each person's gifting. It does not elevate one over the other because God doesn't. The gift of marriage and the gift of singleness are given by God to the church to create the most clear witness of Christ. <clears throat> the calling to follow Jesus provides a strength by which Paul says, I can do all things. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Jesus says it's the way to life. God has designed the church to be a new family which seeks him above all else. <clears throat> Whose lives reflect the love of Christ for one another. So not everyone needs to get married and not everyone needs to be single. We each have a calling from God that shows what he's like. And when single people in the church hang out with a family and little kids who are uh, indoctrinated by our culture say, well, why aren't you married? You get a great opportunity to tell them about Jesus. <clears throat> Romans 8 says, there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. The marriage idolatry and, and, the, and the, the thinking in our culture it doesn't just want to say you're doing something wrong as a single. It says there's something wrong with you. You need to be ashamed of who you are, right? The difference between shame and guilt. Guilt is feeling bad, feeling guilty for something that you did. Shame is feeling bad about who you are. And our culture says there's something wrong with you. Well, I, I should say we we're very much getting over this in our culture. But our culture in the church, in many ways, says there's something, there, there's something wrong with who you are. You should be ashamed of being single. Jesus does not say that. The Bible does not teach that. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, whether you're called to be single or called to be married. The question is, how are you pursuing Christ in that? How does that lifestyle 
best demonstrate and exemplify Christ. <clears throat> so just to, just to transition that section, Paul says, regarding the questions you ask in your letter, yes, it is good to abstain from sexual relations. So that was point one, single. The second, my second point is single-minded. Paul says, remain as you were when God called you. <clears throat> this, is the, this is the part that it's hard for us to swallow, that God could call us to do something that our whole culture and life has told us is impossible or not worth it. That God would call us to do something that is not for our self-fulfillment or self-advancement, but it's for the advancement of somebody else or something else. There's a great article, I'll email it to you, whoever wants to, to read it, by an old author named uh, Thomas Chalmers. It's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection, I think. He says this about our heart, and it's kind of convoluted. I'll explain it, but I, I love the way that he says it. The heart is not so constituted, and the only way to disp- dispossess it of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. Nothing can exceed the magnitude of the required change in a man's character when bidden, as he is in the New Testament, to love not the world nor any of the things that are in the world. For this so comprehends all that is dear to him in his existence as to be equivalent to commanding to the command of self-annihilation. But the same revelation which dictates so mighty an obedience places within our reach as mighty an instrument of obedience. It brings for admittance to the very door of our heart an affection which once seated upon its throne will either subordinate every precious inmate or bid it away. I just want to restate what he said there. It's so powerful. He's tearing down moralism. When we say to people, Empty your heart of the idols that you have. The idols of this world are nothing. Marriage, singleness, sex, money, power. All those idols are nothing. You need to stop worshiping them. Cold turkey. The person hears our gospel as a call to self-annihilation. What do you mean I need to get rid of these things that I love? This is who I am. This is all I've ever known. If I get rid of this, these things, I'm nothing. I'm going to fade away. How can this be? The calling is too, he says, there's, nothing exceeds the magnitude of the transformation that is called, that is put upon us by the New Testament to not love the world. He says the love of the world and the love of God are so far apart. They're not close. They're enemies. There's enmity between those two things. You can't have them both in the same heart. But when we'll, all we do is call people to say, Hey, you have this, you have these desires, you have these things. Stop it, and you can follow Jesus. You need to, you need to just not follow those idols. You need to not follow your <clears throat> uh, impulses. You need, to, you need to not follow your heart. What are we, we're almost saying like you need to disappear, you need to become nothing. Which is interesting. You need to die. That's the call of the gospel. It's not just, hey, tweak yourself. 
change a little bit of your perspective. The gospel is a call that is so incredibly different than anything else in the world. And we, we just bandy it around like it's just a, a Christianese thing or like it's just something that is, we can take lightly. The magnitude of this message is incredible, but the power that lies behind it is even more incredible. Because the promise is that God will get you through, is that following Jesus will be enough for you, whether you're single or whether you're married. You can follow Jesus freely and not have an idol of sexuality. You can follow Jesus freely and be completely celibate. You can follow Jesus freely and have 10 children. Those things don't add to the calling of Christ. It's understanding his calling, why he's put you where you're at, that clarifies all this other stuff and allows you the freedom to follow him. When we truly understand this call of Jesus to follow him, we're confronted with a magnitude of a choice that is just incomparable. Everything. We think, if I leave everything behind, like, I have nothing. But how do we define everything? The everything that we think we're leaving behind, God says, is nothing. I have something so much better for you. It's me. We think that faith is conditioned upon what we can get out of it. Read the book of Job. This is what the book of Job is about. This is what the devil thinks of faith. God says, look at Job. He's a faithful person. The devil says, he's only faithful because you, you give him all the stuff. He's only faithful because you keep him healthy. He's only faithful. The devil's the prosperity gospel originator. God says, no, he's not. Take all the stuff. Take all his health. Now what? He's still faithful, punk. You don't understand faith. It's not about what you get out of it. It's a trust in God. And it can get you through anything. True faith stands apart from the things of this world and it makes no promise to deliver them in this life only. The promise is that the faith is true, the hope is sure, and the love is powerful enough to get us to our destination. We're in so many ways a product of our environment. Our world certainly shapes us to hear Jesus saying, take up your cross and follow me, and it's daunting from our perspective. When we look at the world, it is a frightening thing to see the wasteland and void of where our hearts once longed to go. The siren song of Egypt calls us back with the reminder, reminders of the comfortable and recognizable idols we once served. At least they fed us a bit. But we can't just go out into darkness we are doomed. We stand on the castle walls as the servant of Elisha, overcome by the sight of a massive army surrounding their castle, come to get them. And he says to Elisha, woe, woe is us. We're doomed. Look at the enemy. And Elisha prays for him and says, God, help him see the truth. Help him see reality. And when he opens his eyes, he sees that the, the enemy, this overwhelming power that he thinks nothing could overcome, is surrounded by a host of fiery chariots. In one second, God changes his perspective on reality, and he's able to see that God is for him. And God is more powerful than whatever it is you think is going to come and tear you to pieces. Go back and read that story in, in Second Kings. I'll have to look it up. <laughs> it's one of my favorite stories on understanding faith. 
His face is lighted up with the glow of a thousand fiery chariots surrounding the enemy. In a moment, his reality is revolutionized by grace through faith. So Paul says, each of you should continue to live in whatever situation the Lord has placed you. Remain as you were when God first called you. This is my rule for all the churches. For instance, a man who was circumcised before he became a believer should not try to reverse it. And a man who was uncircumcised when he became a believer should not be circumcised now. You should each remain. He says it makes no difference whether or not a man has been circumcised. The important thing is to keep God's commandments. Each of you should remain as you were when God called you. So, real quick. It's hard to understand, talk about circumcision for us. For them, it's more than a medical procedure. I think what we can take from this is that following Jesus, the call of Jesus does not require us to make cultural or religious changes because Jesus is concerned with our heart. Where better to start than right where you are? Right where I live, my broken family relationships, the unforgiveness, the bitterness. No one can hurt us like our family. And just getting, us, getting out of our little social circle is not salvation. Yet Jesus is calling us to remain right where we are at in the sense of a religious cultural identity. This is the age-old mistake that people make to bring what we call the social gospel. If you learn how to read, reading, writing, and arithmetic, Jesus will love you. If you, take, you, know, if you just at least put on a t-shirt, Jesus is going to love you. No, we need to bring the power of the gospel into cultures and let people start following Jesus right where they're at. The gospel is not, not about what culture we express or what time we go to church or how we dress. It's about transformation. It begins right where we're at. So this transformation is from autonomy to submission to doing what is right. From, doing, from living according to what is right in our own eyes to submitting ourselves humbly to what God says, to the truth understanding that we're not always right that we need help to discern those things and Paul says the important thing is to keep God's commandments we can do we can do that no matter what culture or language or people group we are a part of God has given guidelines to strengthen us so that we can love others he's given commandments truth for us to hold on to and let that inform our lives and our hearts rather than our hearts informing that he says this Continuing on, yes, each of you should remain as you were when God called you. Are you a slave? Don't let that worry you, but if you get a chance to be free, take it. And remember, if you were a slave when the Lord called you, you are now, you are now free in the Lord, or, or you could say you're now Christ's freed man. And if you are free when God called you, you are now a slave of Christ. God paid a high price for you, so don't be enslaved by the world. Each of you, dear brothers and sisters, should remain as you were when God first called you. So we can talk about slavery as it was practiced in our culture. This is not what Paul is referring to. The inconscionable practice of chattel slavery, which we practice in our country from its inception until the Civil War, has, had its effects even to, has its effects even today in our history. The race-based form of slavery, which dehumanized masses of people, lingers in our history and serves today as the root of our racialized and divided society. So when we see the word slave, it's kind of like when we see the word sex. It's like, that's what this is about. We just interpret it through our cultural lens. The Bible is a true historical account of things, and it talks about slavery as it was a common practice and an institution throughout human history, especially 2,000 years ago. Paul's not writing to those who were slaves in our country, necessarily. He's writing to those who are slaves in Roman culture. 
they could read, they could have families, they could even work their way out of slavery and become freed men. This is the concept. He says, if you can get your freedom, then take it. Freed men. You're declared a freed person. When you go from slavery to being free, you have a document, you have an ID card that says you're a freedman. And they, they carried this with them. In Corinth, this was a normal practice. There was a lot of economic opportunity for people to get out of slavery. So a person is not called to a new vocation or social status. His vocation and social status are infused with a new significance, which is the call of God. As we lament our country's history of slavery and seek to undo its long and lasting effects, be aware that this problem is with humanity. We can look back and say, it's terrible what our country did. But don't deceive yourselves. There are more slaves today than at any time in human history. Benjamin Skinner, a fellow of the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy at Harvard Kennedy School of Government, if that's not enough of a title for you, says an estimated 27 million people in the world are forced to work, held through fraud, under threat of violence, for no pay beyond substance, forced in marriages, and in sex trafficking and prostitution. 27 million people today. Through mostly illegal and called by, though mostly illegal and called by different names, slavery nevertheless exists today in India, Pakistan, Nepal, Bhutan, Southeast Asia, Romania, Sudan, Haiti, Brazil, Latin America, and even the United States. It's reported in Time Magazine, January 18, 2010. Despite more than a dozen international conventions banning slavery, in the past 150 years, there are more slaves today than at any point in human history. So it's easy for us to say, oh, the Bible condones slavery that those people used to do. That's just the arrogant, insular view of reality. There are more slaves today than there have ever been in history. So what would be good news to a modern slave? Let's say you met somebody in the sex trade. Let's say you met somebody who's being forced to work as an as a indentured servant or a slave that they're never going to get out of. Would you say to them, hey, get free, and then you can follow Jesus? Is that good news for them? No, it's not good news at all. Because the trick is they're never going to get free. They're working off a debt that's inflated and that's meant to trap them in slavery so that someone else can profit by them. So when Paul says to someone, if you're a slave, don't worry about it. He's helping them to understand, you don't need to gain your freedom to follow Jesus. Start following Jesus right now, and when you give yourself to Jesus, you're free in Christ. <coughs> the identity of a slave is someone who, see, who is trapped. There's no way out for them. And Paul says, this life is not all there is. The good news to the modern slave and to the slaves of the Roman period is if you're trapped in slavery, Jesus loves you. He died for you and he wants you to be part of his kingdom. He wants you to be a child of God and you can start being a child of God right where you're at. <clears throat> and then if God provides a way for you to get free, get free, not so you can be free, but so that you can follow Jesus better. So that it, it would provide an opportune way for you to follow Jesus. What kind of slavery do we face? How about debt? If you can be free, get free. So we are called right where we are at. Freedom is not our salvation. Getting a better job is not our salvation. 
or wholeness or freedom. It's only found in Christ. All other things are temporary and can be taken away. Jesus' call is to begin right where you're at, if at all possible. Freedom exists to take it so you can be more effective in serving him, not because it makes you more holy. So how do we apply all these things? Wisdom comes from repentance, which is the birth of the spiritual mind. It's being born again. This repentance is never a vacuum, but rather it's informed by the word. Romans shares it like this. Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you, Romans chapter 12, to give your bodies to God because of all he's done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. So faith, in in chapter 10, he says, faith comes from hearing and that hearing is from the words of Christ. Jesus said to people who believed in him, you're truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teaching. This word remain is the same word Paul uses, abide in, live in, stay with. You're truly my disciples if you abide in my word and you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. How many times have we said that? If you, know, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. But Jesus says it's his word. His word is the truth that you need to know. That's what's going to set you free. Is it me? Remain as God has called you. Trust in his sovereignty. It is to put your hope in his coming. It's to love Jesus and be so empowered to love others. It's really to be walking through life and to find a treasure buried in a field and run home and sell everything you have to buy that field because it's so much more valuable than anything that you have. Jesus has captured our hearts because while we're still sinners, he gave his perfect life as a gift which conquers sin and death, granting us who receive it, anyone who receives him, abundant life now and the free gift of eternal life. Jesus is at work as he promised always to be with us. He sent his spirit to indwell the believer right where we are by leading us into the truth. The spirit gives gifts to the church as he sees fit to edify the church and he outlines for us the use of these gifts by his word. And the church exercises these gifts for God's glory. Jesus will accomplish all that he taught us. He promised to build a place for us in his father's house and he's preparing it now and he will return to take us there. He validated all his promises by coming back from the dead. He paid the ransom for our failings, our sin, our rebellion and self-righteousness in his own body on the cross but death could not hold him down. He rose again to new life, ascended into heaven and now wields all authority in heaven and on earth and in your workplace and in the court system and in your family and in your neighborhood and finally in the hearts of those who place their trust in him. When our hearts hear the call, we no longer strive to prove ourselves. We trust in Jesus and we can remain where we are because his call is our significance, our purpose, our meaning in whatever situation that he has placed us. With a new heart, we receive in Jesus the desires of our heart look up and away from the lies and empty idolatry of self-fulfillment, self-advantage, status, and self-promotion to the promotion of the one who has captured our whole heart. That he has promised... 
that what he has promised and proved is true. And we can seek first his kingdom and righteousness, trusting all these things will be added unto us. Not worrying about this present life, but understand that what we have is eternal and we can store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. It's not marriage, it's not singleness, celibacy, it's not social position that counts, but obedience to God's calling and the commandments in our lives to each other, to each, to own their gifting. Walking in the uniqueness of this calling is a life of eternal significance. It's not changing your life that makes God's calling clear. It's understanding God's calling that changes your life. Father, I just thank you for your calling in our lives, Lord Jesus. I thank you that you chose by your grace to give your life for us while we were still sinners, Lord. We, did, we didn't even turn to you when you had provided a way for us to have eternal life. Lord, would you let the magnitude of what you've done once again penetrate our hearts and our lives and transform us, Lord? Bring sanctification in our hearts today. Bring salvation in our hearts today, Lord Jesus. Fill our hearts with you so much that it overflows in our conversations. Lord, fill our hearts so much that we can follow you and throw aside the sins that so easily entangle us by keeping our eyes on you, Lord Jesus. Lord, grant to us again the joy of our salvation. Take not your Holy Spirit from us, Lord. Empower us to go out and walk in the faith that you've granted to us, in the gospel, which is your power to salvation, Lord, to to wholeness for all who believe it. Lord, I pray that that message would transform our hearts. I pray that we would understand more and more of our calling, Lord Jesus. Clarify to us where you're taking us and what it means and what we're giving up, Lord. Because it doesn't compare to what you have for us, Lord. Help us to understand and believe that. In Jesus' name, amen. And so we remember Again, the sacrifice that Jesus has made. We come with our families, with our children, leading them in understanding Christ's body that was broken, his blood that was shed, which is a new covenant for us. We do this together because none of us is righteous apart from that work that Christ has done. So come with your families and celebrate again Jesus' sacrifice. Thank you.